Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Kyungsu Bias about his poem, Adoption Day, which appears in issue 23 of The Common. Mark Kyungsu Bias is the recipient of the 2022 Joseph Langland Prize from the Academy of American Poets and the 2020 William Matthews Poetry Prize. A semifinalist for the 92Y Discovery Prize, he has been offered support from Breadloaf, Kundiman, and Tin House. He is a recent graduate of the MFA program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and has work published or forthcoming in The Adroit Journal, Best New Poets, Hank, Poets.org, and Washington Square Review, among other journals. Mark Kyungsu Bias, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe where you're living, where you're calling from now. Yeah, sure. I'm currently in New Jersey. I just finished grad school at UMass Amherst, and I'm living in this sort of transitionary period. I'm living with my family right now before I moved to Korea in July. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we got you before you moved. The podcast can be very difficult over international lines. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Great. Um, I would love to start off with a reading. Would you read Adoption Day for us? Yeah, of course. Adoption Day begins with a Korean proverb as the epigraph, which reads, "If even if the sky collapses, there will be a hole in it. Our cat died before the towers fell. No one was in the ground yet when you were close to coming home. Mom said you couldn't enter, said our country couldn't trust the planes. The mother mouth shut to everything but the wind. When you close a country, eventually nothing inside climbs out. Nothing inside except what climbs out of us. America said, this is what happens when we let them in. I swore I would protect you. Dad reads the homily on the 15th anniversary, says God turned a cloud of smoke into a ring. A little Korean boy falls through the halo, a black cat in a shoebox. Thank you for reading that. I wonder, as, as much as it's possible to do so, could you describe or, or summarize what, what this poem is about to you? Sure. Yeah. I, so I come from a family of adoptees. My sister, brother, and myself were adopted. Uh, when I was about seven years old, uh, we were adopting my brother. And after my parents filled out you know, all the required documents, they were told that we could pick him up from JFK Airport in late September. Now, this was in 2001. And before he mm-hmm. arrived, 9-11 happened. We were told that all international planes were banned from entering the country indefinitely. Of course, that meant my family didn't know if my brother would ever arrive in the U.S. Simply put, that's like the foundational narrative in the poem. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, the consequences of 9-11 aren't located only within that day. On the surface, right. stopping air travel was an obvious initial reaction, perhaps a, a necessary security measure to such violence as we collectively as a country tried to understand what was happening. But 9-11 changed so much. I mean, we still see the effects to this day, not just in airport security, but in foreign policy and the divided sentiments surrounding immigration. And so I want to step closer to those ideas and really interrogate them. You know, when the U.S. closed its borders, it was to keep us safe. But living in this country as an immigrant, as a person of color, became much more dangerous when that happened. You know, xenophobia and racism Mm -hmm. returned as relevant discourse in our quote-unquote, post-racial society. What really climbed out of many Americans was not fear, but hate. 
Mm. Yeah, reading it, there's, you know, it's it's situated on that on that day hypothetically, but it, yeah, it reminded me of so many things that have happened since then, and you know, certainly we're still seeing echoes of that today. And it, you know, I thought of the um, the Trump administration's Muslim ban. You know, where again, you know, planes weren't allowed to come, people weren't allowed to come. Yeah. Yeah, that happened, and then you know, what happened with COVID when we were when we closed the country to international flights and then the anti-Asian sentiment was being spread because of COVID. So yeah, we definitely see iterations of the same thing happening over and over again. Yeah. I wish that we didn't. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) I would love to know if there's any line or aspect of this poem you want to draw our listeners attention to like a a line you, you like to linger on or something you hope they don't miss. Yeah, I think so with the lines, when you close a country, nothing inside climbs out, nothing inside except what climbs out of us, sort of mm-hmm. similar to what I was mentioning before about when we closed this country, you know, it was to keep us safe. And what happened then was a lot of hate was being spread to immigrants. It was, um, and so when my brother finally did arrive in the U.S. like months later, the country was noticeably different, you know, from before 9-11. And we didn't really know what was in store for him. And that uncertainty, that tension is is really what drives the poem. Yeah, I really, I really like those lines. It sort of turns on itself. Uh, well, so normally I would ask what inspired you to start working on this poem, but I think you've, you've sort of clarified that. But I, I was just wondering, like... Um, I'm always curious about poetry because I don't write poetry. Mm-hmm. So it sort of fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does the first draft come together? Did you sit down thinking you would write about this or does it just sort of um, come almost unconsciously and then you find you're exploring something you hadn't thought to explore? Yeah, it, it really depends on the poem. So the inspiration of this poem actually came from my father. My father is a, a deacon in the Catholic church and I don't necessarily subscribe to those beliefs, but occasionally I'll go to mass to be with my family to hear my my father read and during a particular service he was delivering his homily and he basically just told the story of adopting my brother post 9-11 and of course for many resurfacing those memories evoked strong emotions so I went home that day and wrote the story from my perspective and it didn't really differ from my father's perspective when speaking matter-of-factly about the events but I knew how we experienced that day was very different I mean of course I was a child and he was an adult but the difference also in our identities and how that affected our perception of the event. You know, a, a child's mind in the wake of tragedy starts to compound memory. So when I was a kid, I remember our cat dying just before the towers were hit. But my mm. mother later told me that the time between her dying and 9-11 was quite significant. And I found it interesting how grief works in that way, how something so unfathomable could be blurred with something of a lesser scale. And that's what the piece was originally about. The poem was really more focused on the cat, but now she's only there in the first and final line. That's really interesting. I love hearing that. I also, I love this Korean proverb that you started with. Um, Can you talk about choosing to include that? Is is it something you often do? Does it come before the poem? Does it come after the poem? So if grief is a room that is seemingly inescapable, the proverb offers hope in finding an opening which I felt was very relevant to not just the poem, but the event the poem recounts. The proverb also brings the work of translation into the piece. And to me, translation by its very nature is imperfect. Something will always be lost, whether it's cultural concepts, author intention, or even sounds. 
And in that way, I think immigration is a translation of a person. One must consider what one will lose and gets becoming American. And I think for many adoptee immigrants, loss is a significant part of that experience. But also another significant part of that experience is not about loss, but about never starting. So I can't say I ever lost the Korean language because I never had it. I was too young to speak when I came to America. So my first and only language became English. And I found the proverb and asked an editor who published one of my poems years ago to translate it into English. And I felt that act alone was an act of immigrating. And so the epigraph felt entirely necessary when entering the poem. But I I typically don't uh, begin poems with epigraphs. It just, for this one, it felt very necessary. Mm, Yeah, that's really interesting. I really enjoyed hearing you read this poem because one of my favorite things about it is is the language and sort of the sounds of the words as you put them together. I feel like there's something very satisfying in it to me. And, and I'm thinking specifically of lines like the mother mouth shut to everything but the wind, you know, just like the sound of that mother mm-hmm. mouth. Um, as, a, as a prose writer, again, I am always so curious about how poets do these things. What's your process with that? Like, do those things come unconsciously or do you try a few different things and see what works? You know, it's funny. Most of the time I'll forego clear narrative in favor of sound, but recent poems may prove otherwise. But when I'm (laughs) writing, most of the time sound comes unconsciously, but that doesn't mean it's like some natural skill. Uh, When I was growing up, I was a huge fan of hip hop and I still am. You know, I I would listen to Tupac, Lil' Kim, Biggie, Nas, Gangsta Boo, and these artists that I really admired and still admire, not just as musical artists, but also as writers, as poets. And to this day, one of the greatest lines I've ever heard is in Tupac's If I Die Tonight, where he says, uh, I'm sick of psychotic society, somebody save me. I mean, beyond the clear alliteration, we get the internal rhyme of that sigh sound. But the mm-hmm. word psychotic is front-loaded with that sound, while the word society is back-loaded with the sound. And it makes you mm-hmm. hyper-aware of timing and how you can purposely miss time, sonic satisfaction, in order to create more catharsis. And this is obviously <laughs> just one technique of so many. And outside of mm-hmm. rhyme, there are even more techniques. But if you listen to lyric like lyrics like this every day for years, it's almost a promise that these maneuvers will show up in your work, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I love that. I do think, you know, very often when we learn things about writing or especially creative writing, I know, you know, you just did finish an MFA, like we learn things and we learn names for things. But, it, you know, if you've been consuming, you know, hip hop or poetry or books mm-hmm. or even television, you know, sometimes these things are just already in, in you and, and they just come out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear you read another poem. We, we published Meeting My Mother online in February. Mm-hmm. Would you read that one? Yeah, sure. Meeting my mother. So this is how it ends. Your body lay flat like the hyphen between two years. The salt licked from the hollow earth. In another life, I'm sure I loved you. In this life, I think we were singing. Hiding is also a form of living, of staying alive. If you are no longer, I pray you are in a place unimaginable, haunting your sons with gentle air, moving a glass of milk across the table. I promise I will put our eyes to use. The best parts of this country are where we can be alone. How relieving the quiet, how handsome the night becomes when it is covered with light. Thank you for reading that. The first two stanzas of that are just breathtaking. I love the body flat, like the hyphen between two years. Thank you. Was the process of writing this poem, was it very different from Adoption Day or similar? Like, do you feel like they're in conversation with each other? Yeah, the, the process was 
definitely a lot different. I mean, oh, cool. just to give some backstory, years ago, I tried to find my biological mother, but there was mm-hmm. too little information about her. I mean, I don't even know her name, let alone the city she moved to. And the question mm-hmm. I think haunts many adoptees is, is my mother dead or alive? And to know that that question may never be answered with certainty is a strange type of grief. Sure, I, I like went through all the recognizable stages of loss, but First, I had to decide my mother's death in my own personal life. I had this choice, either let the possibility of finding her haunt me for the rest of my life or accept that I will never see her again. I had this thought that maybe when I do meet her, it will be at her gravestone. And I know how dark that sounds, but even that would be a way to find and speak to her. The question then became, what would I say if I were to be in that situation? And so the poem was written with tenderness rather than tension intention being the mode through which Adoption Day was written. And while <laughs> the poems carry similar themes and concepts, the process in writing them was very different. For, for one thing, Adoption Day took four years of consistent rewrites before I submitted it to the common, and meeting my mother took three weeks. And perhaps that's because the mental and emotional work that went into these poems was quite different. I was figuring out what I wanted to say while writing Adoption Day, and meeting my mother was an idea that I've been investigating all my life. So when I finally went to write it, it seems only natural that it would take me less time. Oh, that's so that's so interesting. I want. I mean, again, just humor my curiosity. Can you talk a little bit about the form of this poem? You know, making choices about line breaks and and stanzas and that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I so it's funny because that is really the only thing about this poem that changed through the different drafts, because mm-hmm. it started with tercets and then it went to strictly couplets but then I decided just to focus on the line breaks and the page breaks without concern with how many lines were in each stanza Um, and I think I was in this kind of mood this mode of playing with different forms the most experimental I get is with the slash uh, instead of breaking the line because I think the living and the staying are very interesting when they when they're placed next to each other but there's a clear cut between them. Um, and I just, I didn't want to be restricted in those ways where I was counting the lines. So it's really just concerned with where each individual line breaks. And then I guess um, the number of lines in the stanzas just kind of came naturally when very often it doesn't, but for this one, it did. And so when you're making those choices, are those choices about, sound mostly like where you want people to pause yeah i think when breaking the lines it's it's very important the intention of where you're breaking and i do like to have lines stand on their own but then get the context is added to or highlighted when you move through the poem when you go to the next line so hiding is also a form of living of staying and then you have the alive after the break. So you can take each line for its own meaning, but when they're compounded, when you read them together, it adds more meaning. And I mean, definitely feel free to say if this is like too specific, but um, as, you know, because of how things are broken, there's certain words that sort of hang on a line just by themselves at the end of a stanza. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, is, is that something nice for you visually? Or again, does it sort of give them a, a prominence or a weight? I think a little bit of both. I think it, I, I, I'm not sure if this uh, lands well with every reader, but uh, I'm asking the reader to pause there for a moment and consider the word on its own. 
and even some phrases like i loved you in the past tense of love i want the reader to sit with that idea what does it mean to have loved somebody and does that mean that love continues or does it end with a life and when we get the word singing and alone i do want the reader to pause there before continuing onward mm, that's so great um, I appreciate you humoring all my logistical oh, questions. This is so interesting for me. Um, you, you talked a little bit about uh, the line breaks in this poem changing. I'm just wondering, do you have a certain approach for the revision process, you know, either with these poems or, or just with your work in general? Like how much did they change from, from the first draft? Yeah, I think in terms of line breaks, the line breaks always come last. That's when I'm sort of cleaning up the poem and trying to see where the sounds lie and what is sonically pleasing. But the main bulk of the editing happens through two techniques that I always suggest to every writer is taking the first one or two stanzas and just deleting them. Because I think <laughs> I find very often that these act as a runway or a warm up with the into the poem. And most of the time, for me at least, I when I delete the first two stanzas, it helps the poem tremendously because I'm getting rid of the fluff. I'm getting rid of the the warm up, the exercise it took to get into what I really want to say. And then the other technique is finding your favorite lines and deleting them because we come, we become attached to our favorite lines, whether they're sonically pleasing or we think they're cleverly written or the message is there. But because we're so hesitant to detach ourselves from our favorite lines, we don't realize how much those lines are weighing down the poem. Now, they might be great lines, but they might not be great for that poem. So I urge myself and I urge other writers to try that technique. Just mm -hmm. pick your favorite line or two lines and just delete them. And then, I mean, obviously you might look at the piece immediately and go, no, absolutely not. But if you sit on it for a few days and you consider it, you see so many different possibilities for the piece. And it a lot of times for me, the, the poem opens up after that happens. That's so interesting to hear you say that because I think my favorite part of both the poems that you read were, were the openings. I think um, they're so sort of arresting and, mm -hmm. and high impact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I definitely, I mean, even in revising prose, I definitely do a lot of throat clearing and yeah, runway at the beginning of a chapter, at the beginning mm -hmm. of the story. Yeah. That's yeah. great advice. Um, are there any other sort of go-to methods that you have that you suggest to people or that you've heard from other people that have worked well for you? Uh, yeah, there's this technique where you number each of your standards just in order, one, two, three, four, and then you flip the numbers around and then see what happens when everything gets disorganized in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that really helps. And another way that could help is finding a a word that you don't necessarily like in the poem you just like the idea of that word mm -hmm. highlighting it and in the margin write in different synonyms for that word not necessarily literal synonyms but ideas so for instance if i were to look at adoption day and i were to highlight the word home well what could replace home i could say my mother's voice i could say my five dogs I could say the the sound of the water in the pond behind my house. It's you you come up with these these phrases that could replace these singular words. And sometimes you know the simple language is the best is the best option. But I think that really diversifies your images and your your vocabulary 
if you try to do that. Yeah, that's a great idea. I want to try that on my prose writing. <laughs> that's really great. Helpful, yeah. Well, it's so nice that you have these sort of concrete um, sort of tips and tricks and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I think for um, for a lot of poets I've talked to, it's, it seems like a little more amorphous. And I'm, I'm sure there's a quality of that in your own revision. But mm -hmm. it's I'm again, I'm just fascinated with the logistics of, of poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think that you've been to Tin House and, and Breadloaf writing workshops. And I, and I know you did an MFA at UMass Amherst. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking there's been a lot of talk lately about what makes workshops useful or harmful, like supportive or competitive, and about what the best way to conduct them is. And mm -hmm. I didn't do an MFA, so it's something I'm, I'm always, again, really curious mm -hmm. about. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that or sort of, yeah, experiences that it sort of affected your opinion on on the workshop mm. process oh you're so lucky you didn't do an mfa it's <laughs> it's uh all the most of the bad rumors people hear about the mfa turn out to be true um mm. yeah i can i can talk for so long about workshops <laughs> and academia but i'll try mm. i'll try to keep it brief but it still might be a lot but uh okay. <laughs> when i was at tin house my workshop was being led by diana coy win who's a wonderful writer and instructor she didn't even call it a workshop she called it a studio and I think that small change was a, was a significant way to alleviate the pressures of production. You know, we hear the word work and shop and immediately think create and sell, when really all we should be doing is creating as a community. But there are systems in place in these MFA programs, these conferences and online workshops that seem to inherently come with those models of creating. The literary world mm -hmm. is very competitive, whether we like to admit it or not. There's so right. many journals, but for every journal, there are hundreds, even thousands of writers trying to place their work in those journals. And it's difficult not to see this competition make its way into these spaces. I think because of this, the workshop can easily become incredibly toxic and damaging to especially marginalized writers. The rigor mm -hmm. and fast pace of competition and capital historically has buried minorities. And unfortunately, it's a very common thing to see these voices get misinterpreted or even sabotaged. When we, when we have to survive in these white-dominated spaces, it's essential to be able to spot when our work isn't being read carefully and when it is. As an instructor myself, I tell my students that the workshop isn't law. Take what you think is useful and leave what you think isn't. The best mm -hmm. workshops I've been in as a student were the ones that banned edits and criticism, and instead the approach was, what was your experience reading this piece? While this doesn't completely cure the ills of academia, it asks writers to look at the piece as a space that welcomes us rather than a construction site. And mm -hmm. as artists, I think many of us like to believe that we are above these systems because we have self-expression and self-expression is the most powerful way to attain agency, but even agency can be exploited. You know, the literary industry is just that, it's an industry and just like, every industry under capitalism, it appoints what is marketable and what isn't. I mean, I'm afraid that poems such as Adoption Day or Meeting My Mother will label me as an quote unquote adoptee poet. And that isn't mm -hmm. a bad thing necessarily until that becomes the only avenue through which my work is approached. And from my experience in observations, writers of marginalized communities are often pigeonholed in these identities and yeah. workshops reinforce that idea, but they can also subvert and help us understand each other as artists, as people. And I've, I've definitely seen that in some of the, the better workshops I've been in. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. I'm just thinking um, there's a poet, uh, Tiana Clark, who I'm, I'm such an enormous fan of. Mm-hmm. And um, in her story, in her poetry collection, she writes about, you know, sort of feeling that the workshop or even, you know, publishing in general just wa- just wants her black pain. Like that's mm-hmm. that's what they want her to be writing about and sort of, you know, wanting to branch out from that and not feel stuck in that one mode. Yeah, yeah I think the problem I identity poetics really comes into play especially in contemporary poetry and we see or at least i've seen it, what's being published today is great poems but what's being sold is the bio of the poet you know you go to yeah. contributor bio and you get all their identifying features when their poems aren't necessarily about those things so i think it's a very exciting time for marginalized writers because we're getting so much exposure but it's also a very dangerous time because a lot of publishing houses, a lot of lit mags are trying to grab their marginalization cards. And it's very clear by the way they sell the poet and not the poetry. Yeah, I, I hope it's just a, a temporary part of this sort of process of mm-hmm. opening up and and yeah, publishing more more marginalized writers. But mm-hmm. yeah, I hope it's not a permanent feature. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so always the, the last question we, we ask folks is, is just what you're working on now, like what, what's next from you? So right now I'm trying to submit my manuscript to different places. I've been working on this manuscript for so many years. I started it before the MFA, carried it through the MFA, and I still have it. So right now submitting that and also trying to work on new projects. I think for me, it's very helpful to step away from the genre that I spend the most time in. So I've I've been working on prose, not in any serious way, just jotting down some notes and really trying to return to that storytelling approach that I fell in love with as a kid, but it's been, it's been quite some time. So uh, it's, it's definitely rough, but it's, it's feels refreshing for sure. Yeah. I definitely feel like it can be nice to change modes and Mm -hmm. just, yeah, maybe there's a little less pressure in one mode than in the other. Mm -hmm. Um, I know we hadn't originally planned on this, but we have a little bit of time. So I was wondering, do you want to read, um, the other poem that we published in February, um, Visitor. Sure. Visitor. When I counted my brothers, I saw a fin of fog moving outward from the city, dividing into fingers that touched my world's dulled edges. One day it became the rain, the next a god. I saw the years between my unfinished friends as a flickering streetlight, and then a war filled in their outlines until there was nothing left of what I knew. Thank you for reading that. Mark Young Zubias, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you, and I have learned so much. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. really appreciate it. Listeners, you can read Mark's poem and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.